Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast. Talking about Book 11, Chapter 25. The crowd seems hesitant to carry out the mob execution of Vereshagen and mortified by their actions after the fact. Do you think this event will have future significance for the people of Moscow? Horrific chapter. Uh, what is the significance of Madame... The... Sorry. Of the madman... Chasing Rostopchin's Chalish, especially given the previous final words of Vereshagin, count there is one god over us. And what exactly does Kutuzov mean when he says, no, I won't give up Moscow without offering a battle? Rahul the invader says, the events in today's chapter are so intense, you can almost sense the madness that transcends right from the first page. Tolstoy's analogy of how Rostopchin considers him to be the person moving the ship that is Moscow, is so on point. There is a realisation in Rostopchin about the gravity of his actions. W.R.T. inciting the mob. But like every self-important person, he finds a way to justify his own actions. The madman's words resembled the final words spoken by Vereshagin, I felt that it was guilt that made Rostopchin ask for his rider to drive faster. Overall, a solid chapter. Twisted Every Way says, Well, that was a depressing chapter. Rostopchin takes out his anger and frustration with the situation on the prisoner and commands the mob to beat the guy to death. Then the crowd sees the results and wonders how they could have done it. Very gruesome. Yeah, it was too human as well. <laughs> like, if you know what I mean, it was, it was so human that it was uncomfortable, the way that they didn't want to attack him at first, but then once it had done, you know, once they'd started, they couldn't kind of leave it undone. They'd gone too far already, and then, they, then it was like a rush to get it done as quickly as possible, and I don't know, there was just so much, like, uh, kind of squirmy, it makes me want to squirm, the, the, uh, the kind of mob mentality and you see it overwhelm all the people individually yuck yuck really yuck um and the kind of cognitive dissonance of um Rostopchin where you know he he orders it to happen not allowing himself to consider how he'll feel after it happens and then as soon as it's done all those feelings that he were he was kind of keeping out of his mind, rush in, flood in, and um, he starts to feel immediately guilty. Yuck. Just a yuck chapter. But a very good one. Anyway, let's read the next one. Chapter 26, I can see the word Murat. Murat in the opening line of the chapter, so we might get some action from Murat, Napoleon's right-hand man, the over-the-top extravagant Murat. Towards four o'clock in the afternoon, Murat's troops were entering Moscow. In front rode a detachment of Württemberg Hussars, and behind them rode the King of Naples himself, accompanied by a numerous suite. About the middle of the Arbat Street, near the church of the miraculous icon of St. Nicholas, Murat halted to await news from the advanced detachment as to the condition in which they had found the citadel, Le Kremlin. 
Around Murat gathered a group of those who had remained in Moscow. They all stared in timid bewilderment at the strange long-haired commander, dressed up in feathers and gold. Is that their Tsar himself? He's not bad, low voices could be heard saying. An interpreter rode up to the group, take off your cap, your caps. These words went from one to another in the crowd. The interpreter addressed an old porter and asked if it was far to the Kremlin. The porter, listening in perplexity to the unfamiliar Polish accent and not realising that the interpreter was speaking Russian, did not understand what was being said to him and slipped behind the others. Murat approached the interpreter and told him to ask where the Russian army was. One of the Russians understood that he, what was asked and several voices at once began answering the interpreter. A French officer, returning from the advanced detachment, rode up to Murat and reported that the gates of the citadel had been barricaded and that there was probably an ambuscade there. Good, said Murat, and turning to one of the gentlemen in his suite, ordered four light guns to be moved towards forward to fire at the gates. The guns emerged at a trot from the column following Murat and advanced up the Arabat. When they reached the end of the Vozdizhenka Street, they halted and drew in the square. Several French officers superintended the placing of the guns and looked at the Kremlin through field glasses. The bells in the Kremlin were ringing for vespers, and this sound troubled the French. They imagined it to be a call to arms. A few infantrymen ran to the Kutaviev gate. Beams and wooden screens had been put there, and two musket shots rang out from under the gate, as soon as an officer and men began to run towards it. A general who was standing by the guns shouted some words of command to the officer, and the latter ran back again with his men. The sound of three more shots came from the gate. One shot struck a French soldier's foot, and from behind the screens came the strange sound of a few voices shouting. Instantly, as at a word of command, the expression of cheerful serenity on the faces of the French general, officers and men changed to one of determined, concentrated readiness for strife and suffering. To all of them, from the marshal to the least soldier, that place was not the Vozdizinka, Mokhevna or Kutaviev Street, nor the Troitsa Gate, places familiar in Moscow, but a new battlefield which would probably prove sanguinary. And all made ready for the battle. The cries from the gates ceased, the guns were advanced, the artillerymen blew the ash off their linstocks, and an officer gave the word fire. This was followed by two whistling sounds of canister shot, one after another. The shot rattled against the stone of the gate, and upon the wooden beams and screens, and two wavering clouds of smoke rose over the square. A few instants after the echo of the reports resounding over the stone-built Kremlin had died away, the French heard a strange sound above their head. Thousands of crows rose above the walls and circled in the air, cawing and noisily flapping their wings. Together with that sound came a solitary human cry from the gateway, and amid the smoke appeared the figure of a bareheaded man in a peasant's coat. He grasped a musket and took aim at the French. Fire, repeated the officer once more, and the reports of a musket and of two cannon shots were heard simultaneously. The gate was again hidden by smoke. 
Nothing more stirred behind the screens and the French infantry soldiers and officers advanced to the gate. In the gateway lay three wounded and four dead. Two men in peasant coats ran away at the foot of the wall towards the Znamenka. Clear that way. Clear that away, said the officer, pointing to the beams and the corpses. And the French soldiers, after dispatching the wounded, threw the corpses over the parapet. Who these men were, nobody knew. Clear that away was all that was said of them, and they were thrown over the parapet and removed later on that they might not stink. Theirs alone dedicates a few eloquent lines to their memory. These wretches had occupied the sacred citadel, having supplied themselves with guns from the arsenal and fired the wretches at the French. Some of them were sabred, and the Kremlin was purged of their presence. Murat was informed that the way had been cleared. The French entered the gates and began pitching their camp in the Senate Square. Out of the windows of the Senate House, the soldiers threw chairs into the square for fuel and kindled fires there. Other detachments passed through the Kremlin and encamped along the Morosaka and Lubyanka and Pokrovka streets. Others quartered themselves along the Vozdizenka, the Nikolsky, and the Tsverskoy streets. No masters of the houses being found anywhere. The French were not billeted on the inhabitants, as is usual in towns, but lived in it as in a camp. Though tattered, hungry, worn out, and reduced to a third of their original number, the French entered Moscow in good marching order. It was a weary and famished, but still a fighting and menacing army. But it remained an army only until its soldiers had dispersed into their different lodgings. As soon as the men of the various regiments began to disperse among the wealthy and deserted houses, the army was lost forever, and there came into being something nondescript. Neither citizens nor soldiers, but what are known as marauders. When five weeks later these same men left Moscow, they no longer formed an army. They were a mob of marauders, each carrying a quantity of articles which seemed to him valuable or useful. The aim of each man when he left Moscow was no longer as it had been to conquer, but merely to keep what he had acquired. Like a monkey which puts its paw into the narrow neck of a jug and having seized a handful of nuts will not open its fist for fear of losing what it holds and therefore perishes. The French, when they left Moscow, had inevitably to perish, because they carried their loot with them, yet to abandon what they had stolen was as impossible for them as it is for the monkey to open its paw and let go of its nuts. Ten minutes after each regiment had entered a Moscow district, not a soldier or officer was left. Men in military uniforms and hessian boots could be seen through the windows laughing and walking through the rooms in cellars and storerooms. Similar men were busy among the provisions and in the yards, unlocking and or breaking open coach house and stable doors, lighting fires in kitchens and kneading and baking bread with rolled up sleeves and cooking or frightening, amusing or caressing women and children. There were many such men, both in the shops and houses, but there was no army. Order after order was issued by the French commanders that day, forbidding the men to disperse about the town, sternly forbidding any violence to the inhabitants of, of uh, or looting any, and announcing a roll call for that very evening, 
but despite all these measures, the men who had till then constituted an army flowed over the wealthy deserted city with its comforts and plentiful supplies. As a hungry herd of cattle keeps well together when crossing a barren field, but gets out of hand at once, disperses uncontrollably as soon as it reaches rich pastures, so did the army disperse all over the wealthy city. No residents were left in Moscow, and the soldiers, like water percolating through sand, spread irresistibly through the city in all directions from the Kremlin into which they had first marched. The cavalry, on entering a merchant's house that had been abandoned, and finding there stabling more than sufficient for their horses, went on all the same to the next house which seemed to them better. Many of them appropriated several houses, chalked their names on them, and quarrelled, and even fought with other companies for them. Before they had had time to secure quarters, the soldiers ran out into the streets to see the city, and hearing that everything had been abandoned, rushed to places where valuables were to be had for the taking. The officers followed to check the soldiers and were involuntarily drawn into doing the same. In carriage row, carriages had been left in the shops, and generals flocked there to select caliches and coaches for themselves. The few inhabitants who had remained invited commanding officers to their houses, hoping thereby to secure themselves from being plundered. There were masses of wealth, and there seemed no end to it. All around the quarters occupied by the French were other regions still unexplored and unoccupied, where they thought yet greater riches might be found, and Moscow engulfed the army ever deeper and deeper. When water is spilled on dry ground, both the dry ground and the water disappear, and mud results, and in the same way, the entry of the famished army into the rich and deserted city resulted in fires and looting and the destruction of both the army and the wealthy city. The French attributed the fire of Moscow, or patriotism first de Rostopchin, to Rostopchin's ferocious patriotism, the Russians to the barbarity of the French. In reality, however, it was not and could not be possible to explain the burning of Moscow by making any individual or any group of people responsible for it. Moscow was burned because it found itself in a position in which any town built of wood was bound to burn, quite apart from whether it had or had not a hundred and thirty inferior fire engines. Deserted Moscow had to burn as inevitably as a heap of shavings has to burn on which sparks continually fall for several days, a town built of wood where scarcely a day passes without conflagrations when the house owners are in residence and a police force is present, cannot help burning when its inhabitants have left it and it is occupied by soldiers who smoke pipes, make campfires of the Senate chairs in the Senate Square, and cook themselves meals twice a day. In peacetime it is only necessary to billet troops in the villages of any district, and the number of fires in that district immediately increases. How much then must be must the probability of fire be increased in abandoned wooden town where foreign troops are quartered? Le patriotism feroce de Rostopchin and the barbarity of the French were not to blame in the matter. 
Moscow was set on fire by the soldiers' pipes, kitchens and campfires, and by the carelessness of enemy soldiers occupying houses they did not own. Even if there was any arson, which is very doubtful, for no one had any reason to burn the houses, in any case, a troublesome and dangerous thing to do, arson cannot be regarded as the cause, for the same thing would have happened without any incendiarism. However tempting it might be for the French to blame Rostopchin's ferocity, and for Russians to blame the scoundrel Bonaparte, or later on to place an heroic torch in the hands of their own people, it is impossible not to see that there could be no such direct cause of the fire. For Moscow had to burn, as every village, factory or house must burn which is left by its owners, and in which strangers are allowed to live and cook their porridge. Moscow was burned by its inhabitants, it is true, but by those who had abandoned it, and not by those who remained in it. Moscow, when occupied by the enemy, did not remain intact, like Berlin, Vienna, and other towns, simply because its inhabitants abandoned it, and did not welcome the French with bread and salt, nor bring them the keys of the city. Alright, there we go, there's a chapter, hell of a chapter. You know, it's not often that the chapters without characters, you know, those more kind of mm, uh, reflective chapters. Not often that those are my favourites, but this was a really good one, I felt. Alright, have your say about it, and I'll see you tomorrow.